Michael Show. My name's Dominic Shermati, filling in for Bick Nazar alongside intern Ben, Ben Mazran, Ben Turn, basketball Ben. Any other ones? Golf be, Ben. I can't be intern Ben anymore. You I've are. Been, I've been here for like over a year. You're always intern Ben. Ben Turn. Ben Turn as well. Thank you, Mike and Jason. Yes. And uh, producing today is uh, Victor Goucher. Uh, yeah, it's the People Show. Uh, Bick will be filling in on Canuck Central today. Riccio is off golfing somewhere in Ontario. Uh, we're coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. It is the People Show. Be a part of the show. Text us 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladder on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dunbar Lumber. Tom, it's U.S. Open day one. It is. And wow, are they going low. Yeah. And by they, I mean Xander Shoffley and Ricky Fowler. Who would have thought Ricky Fowler? Satyar Shaw would have. Yeah. I heard that yesterday. I was like, oh, come on, Sat. That's such a weird pick. So, like, he... He just throws that out of nowhere yesterday afternoon. And I'm sitting in the producer studio going, what is he saying right yeah. now? Like, where did that come from? Clearly, he knew something 62. you didn't. 62. 62. So, traditionally, the U.S. Open is the hardest one to win. They make the course impossible yes. to play. If you but shoot even, it's like you might win. Los Angeles uh, Country Club. It way too Way too wide, apparently. And uh, way too easy. It's it's interesting because everyone talks about the rough and the Bermuda grass and how hard it is to get out of that. And that is true. But when the fairways are as wide as they are here at LA Country Club, it doesn't really matter because they're just not missing the fairway. And when you put these guys in the short grass, they can get spin on the ball. They can attack pins. And I know they got some rain recently, so the greens aren't as firm as I'm sure the USGA would like it to be. And these guys are taking advantage. Also, I've just been watching on uh, my blue curve here, and um, it just seems like they're finding the spots on the green, the golfers are, and the ball's just beautifully rolling to the hole. That's doing their homework. No, I, I understand that. I mm-hmm. get that. But it just, it almost seems too easy. It, I think part of it has to do with it just being Thursday. I'm sure the pins are in places that are accessible. If you put it in the right spots, the slopes are going to kind of funnel it towards towards the hole. The, the pins are kind of in these little bowls, it seems like, a, on a lot of the holes, where they're, you can get after it, especially if you're in the fairway. Um, I expect that to change over the next couple of days, especially on the weekend. I expect that the USGA is going to bake out uh, this golf course and it's going to get faster. It's going to get firmer. It's going to get harder to hit those spots, to harder to hold these greens. But right now today, there's a lot of red numbers out there. And I said it yesterday on Canuck Central. I wouldn't be surprised if this US Open got to double digits for the winner. And we almost got there after day one. Yeah, just a bit of a leaderboard update before iMac joins us. Uh, we'll have Kyle Robbins at 3.30 as we jump back in on the U.S. Open. That's the beauty of a non-Canuck-specific show. We can actually talk about other sports. Uh, Xander Shoffley leading at 8-under uh, with Ricky Fowler as well. Uh, Scotty Scheffler is 3rd, uh, 3-under uh, with DeChambeau, Kim, uh, Barjan, Hardy, and Clark. Wow, it's a, 
It's a uh, tight leaderboard near the top. Phil Mickelson, two under par. Yeah. Rory McIlroy. Tied for ninth. Birdied his first two holes of the day, also at two under par currently. Good leaderboard. Lots can happen. Uh, excited to talk at 3.30 about more of this and to see what happens in the next three days. This tournament is far from over, despite a five-shot lead for Shoffley and Ricky Fowler. Uh, joining us now, he is a presentation of Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. It is Sportsnet's triple threat. Ian McIntyre joins us now on The People Show. Ian, how was Las Vegas? Uh, pretty fabulous, I guess. It certainly, it was fabulous for the Golden Knights, and it and it has been uh, since the team uh, moved there. It's it, they are a remarkable story, and and they were a remarkable story even before they won the Stanley Cup. But now that they've, it took them only six years uh, to get to the top of a mountain that you know, Vancouver has been trying to climb for fifty three, and and a lot of other teams have been. <laughs> have been trying to climb for a lot longer than six years. It, it is remarkable, but it's a, it's a special place for hockey. And I don't want to start with a rant here, but <laughs> Please, you know, man. when I was, when, when I was reading uh, online, some people's opinion, Oh, Vegas doesn't deserve this or the NHL gave them this, that, that really, that really bugs me because generally teams get what they are to start with. And it's kind of that way. It's kind of that way in life. I mean, there, yeah, there's good luck, there's bad luck, but typically you get what you earn. And this is a, this is a franchise that has never had an unsold seat. And despite what people may think, that these are you know a bunch of uh, rich, obnoxious guys, high rollers who go to games, that's not the case. Those are, those are Vegas residents, a lot of them, you know, uh, blue collar, uh, work in the casinos, work in the hospitality industry, and they go to two or three games a year uh, because it's an expensive ticket. So the franchise has been supported incredibly by one of the smallest markets in the NHL from from day one. They are so not Florida. They are so not Arizona. And then when you look at the hockey team itself, yeah, you know they took advantage of of the most uh, generous expansion conditions that the NHL had set out for teams. But as, say, a market like ours, where we know what it, how easily a franchise like the Vancouver Grizzlies can fail when you don't get a fair chance out of the gate to, to compete, and that's all that Vegas got was a chance to compete. And, and they, they far exceeded what anybody thought they would do and they far exceeded what seattle did in seattle's first year so you know if 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 teams if people are jealous of some of the players that vegas got to start with well that's on the teams that gave those players up because a lot of teams made mistakes and i think the the more important thing to look at when you're considering the strength of the golden knights is what they did not with expansion but from that first season look at the look at the the trades they'd made and controversial deals and unpopular deals. Marc-Andre Fleury was the face of that franchise. He was absolutely beloved in that city, in that market. And, you know, they thought they needed a different goalie, and it was Robin Lehner. And, and Robin Lehner may, may not play for them again, but that was the decision they made because they thought that he gave them better chances. Same way they brought in Pacioretty, it cost them Nick Suzuki, 
Then when they brought in Jack Eichel, it cost them Pacioretty in in a roundabout way. They went out, but they got the guy they wanted in Eichel. They got Petrangelo. They got Mark Stone. They got Chandler Stevenson, Nick Nick Watt, all kinds of players that they went out and traded for. And those guys have flourished there. So when people say they didn't deserve it, I'd like to know what they think you have to to do to quote unquote deserve a Stanley Cup because they have been a model franchise from day one in terms of the support and how much the NHL means to people there and in terms of how they've operated. Only the Tampa Bay Lightning have played more playoff games than the Vegas Golden Knights since they since they entered the league. And that's not a fluke. That's a reflection on how good they've been and how how year after year, no matter what kind of season they've had, they've they've pushed to get better and they've kind of pushed their chips in to try to win a Stanley Cup every year since that first year and now they've finally done it I say good for them I, I, the NHL would be a far stronger league if it had more franchises like the Vegas Golden I'm act now that you've set the energy coming right out of the gates. I uh, really appreciate it. That's fantastic. I love a little rant off the top. I, ha- I, ha- I haven't been on radio for a long time, so I got some stuff stored up. I some pent up energy, yeah. Uh, what did you make of the way Vegas went about building a contender? Like, like you said, they ruthlessly traded assets. They traded star players in pursuit of improving their roster, and it meant cutting ties with with fan favorites and and cutting ties with coaches. Um, we always hear that this is a copycat league, but it just seems like the the setting in which Vegas was able to do this in is unique to them, and it's not something that another NHL team could necessarily do unless they were able to accumulate an absolutely absurd amount of assets the way that they did. Yeah, I think I think you know a lot of teams should you know if they really want to win they should try to do what Vegas did. I think teams are afraid because you know if you make a mistake and I understand why <laughs> you know we've seen we've seen where those deals don't work out the free agent signings or the big trade that goes the other way but if you really want to win you still got to you still got to take your cuts right you you've got to try and that's what you know, that's what Vegas did. It wasn't because they had so many assets that they acquired. They didn't, they can go out trying to accumulate draft picks and then they, and then they use those to, to get other players. That's not what happened at all. I mean, the, the, the guy who, you know, they spent the most draft picks on to acquire was Thomas Tatar and it was an absolute disaster for Vegas. So they sold him for pennies on the dollar. They, they just went out and made, uh, hockey deals, and you know they had, you know I, I mentioned that they traded, you know Suzuki. They've they've they had three first round picks their first year. So yeah, yeah, they they had some assets to deal, but they picked those players and then and then traded. And one was Brandstrom, and it was a bad trade for Ottawa. And one was Suzuki, and it was a great trade for Montreal. And I I'm trying to think who the third guy was. Was it Cody Glass or am I mixing up years? It might have been Glass. I think so. Who's still who's still, you know, struggling to to build a build a career and they've had only three draft picks since then. So they've they've been willing to trade, you know, their picks for players that they think they can win with now. And and what I see, you know, at Coffee Cat League, I mean it's gonna be very hard to do what they did because they they hit on on so many of those key key deals. Um 
But what I what I love that they've they've done is, you know, they were a team that people said, well, they got no cap space. They can't go. They're not in for Petrangelo. How can they be? They got no cap space. Well, they can't get Jack Eichel. You know, they got no cap space. So what what assets are they going to give up? And they gave up a great player in Alex Tuck, and and they gave up uh, you know futures in that deal that you know maybe in the end that deal is not going to look at so good, but. Jack Eichel was fantastic for them, and the, and they won a cup, and they did it by going out to get a number one center, a number one defenseman, while they were while they were cap crunched. So there is a way to do these things. I'm looking, um, like you said, at how this is a copycat league. You know, should teams take note of the fact that with an elite blue line, a big mobile blue line, a solid forward group, the Knights won with their third string goalie. You know, does this kind of break the notion that you need elite goaltending to win? Like Aiden, Aiden Hill was fantastic this playoffs, but in front of him was skaters that were forcing teams to the outside. It was hard to get to the middle of the ice against Vegas, which probably boosts well, think, Hill's numbers. Yeah, I, I think it's been a few years now. You can go back and look at some of the goalies who have won. I, I, I think that's been a, kind of an ongoing discussion. Do you need... Do you need a franchise goalie? Do you need a great goalie? Do you need a starter? Well, the answer, no, you don't You don't need a great goalie if the team around him is good enough. So that's that's what I'd say. You need great players. And if you don't have a great goalie, then you better have your great players, your great players somewhere else. A- Aiden Hill is actually, you know, depending on, on how you regard Laner, who missed the entire season, but he's probably the fourth goalie. Certainly when he was acquired, uh, for the cost, the ransom of a fifth-round pick. If you did a list, an organizational list of of Vegas goalies, he he would have been fourth. But that said, you know, on my Conn Smythe ballot, he was second, and I had him higher. Some guys didn't have him at all. Some guys had him. I think there was one or two other uh, ballots that had him second. So I, I thought he was he was very important. I think in in some respects. He's pro- probably never going to get the credit he deserves. So he might get the money, might get more money than he deserves now because he's a UFA. But I think there's always going to be this narrative that Vegas was so good and luck. They won with the four-string goalie. Aiden Hill still played great. And, you know, I, I covered the Stanley Cup in person, but I covered uh, the conference final remotely. So I was paying a lot of attention to Vegas-Dallas. All Aiden Hill did and and... You, you know, set aside the team in front of them if you can. But you statistically significantly outplayed Jake Ottinger and significantly uh, outplayed Sergei Bobrovsky. And I kept waiting in the final for him to have a clunker. You know, just have have one bad game. You know, he played more games in a row in the playoffs than he had played in total in the regular season. Uh, I just kept waiting. Well, w- w- you know, he's got to have a bad game somewhere. Or even let in a you know a couple of terrible goals and then bounce back. Well, it just never happened. He was just very very consistent. To your original point about uh, the team in front of him, the Vegas defense is fantastic. And when we talk about a copycat league, I think I think people are already trying to copy it because I don't think it's Vegas they're trying to copy. I think it's Tampa they're trying to copy the the, the cups that Tampa won, where they were regarded as this high end. You know, elite, uh, offensively dangerous team. 
I'm not sure that that was the accurate depiction of what they what they really were. They had some outstanding offensive high-end forwards, but they had a ton of grit and size and physicality, and especially on their defense. They had these huge defensemen. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of teams now, especially you look at the Final Four and, and the defenses that the teams had, I mean, Florida wasn't as... as nearly big as as Vegas but they're still not a small defense and they had uh, a fair bit of toughness and grit in in their defense as well I think this is the way that teams are trying to go and it's really not a secret that this is the way the Vancouver Canucks would like to go as well uh, remember when Vegas was through and I think it was I think it was February maybe it was early March you can look it up while I'm yakking but I, re- I remember Rick Tockett saying after the game, and I think it was unsolicited. I think he just observed with reporters, and it was a good game. The Canucks were close. Vegas won. But he said after the game that he thinks that that Golden Knights defense is the best in the NHL, and he thinks that's the model defense of big guys but mobile, protect the front of their net, and can move the puck. And that's what that's what Vegas has. I think a lot of teams are going to be looking to build a defense that way. Your memory is impeccable. You were right on about the uh, the talking quote. Okay. Um, since we are switching to the Canucks, uh, I'd love to. I uh, would be remiss not to since we have you on. Uh, Ethan Bear undergoes surgery, uh, shoulder, shoulder surgery. Uh, he's now at six months, could return in December. If you're Alvin and Rutherford, do you still qualify him knowing that he's not going to be ready for a large portion of your season? Yeah, I do. Absolutely, I do. Because, you know, if, if, if you believe he's going to be a player for you, then you have to look beyond the fact that he may miss the first two or three months of the year. You can't be that short-sighted. If you're not convinced that he's going to be a player, and by a player I mean someone you want in your defense for the next X number of years, someone that you believe, whether you think he's a legit second pair, whether you think he's would be a really good third pair guy on a, on a strong, stronger team. If the Canucks become a stronger team, whatever you think, you have to believe that he's going to be part of it in order to qualify him. And I think the Canucks believe that he, that he, he can be part of it, but it certainly, certainly complicates, negotiations i mean they've they've been talking for a long time besides uh one of the things that patrick Alvin said at his at his year-end presser which feels like it was about four months ago now um he he said when he was asked about ethan bear that he liked ethan bear but i'm not sure he deserves a raise so that's where they were at at that point that uh bear side obviously is looking for at least some term but they would like they would like a raise on what he made last season, and the Canucks, you know, all being said, at that point he wasn't sure he deserved a raise. So I think it I think it certainly complicates the negotiations. It, you know, when I first when I first heard about the surgery and how long he's going to be out, I mean, we knew that Bear had been hurt at the World Championship, so I was I was disappointed for him. And now I'm kind of gutted for him because here's a guy comes from Carolina and did not have a good experience there. 
um, but had showed promise before that in, in Edmonton. He comes at ba- basically a clearance price, a bargain bin price to the Canucks, and at least stabilizes his career. I'm not going to say, you know, relaunches it because maybe that's being too dramatic, but showed again, um, proved if there had been any doubt that, yes, he, he is actually a pretty solid NHL defenseman. And again, where he fits, ultimately where he's going to be, is he a four, is he a five, is he a three? You need a, time will sort that out. But he showed that he can be an NHL defenseman, did whatever this team asked, I think brought some uh, lead by example, leadership, because he understood, you know, even though it wasn't a happy experience for him in Carolina, it was an elite team, and he brought, he understood what the differences were between how an elite team practices, prepares, plays from from how the Canucks practice, prepares, and played. And so I think that was I think that was important for this organization. And then he goes and answers the call of his country to go play at the World Championships, which I wish more players would do. I don't know what the ratio is for rejections to acceptances when those calls are being made, but some years I'm sure the the rejections outnumber uh, the guys who accept, uh, you know, in the first invitation to go play. So he, he goes to play for his country despite the uncertainty of his contract situation, despite being a free agent. He goes and plays, he gets hurt, and now he's and now he's out. And it and it definitely. Uh, undermines the strength of his position now in what you know what he might be able to demand or what his choices might be if the Canucks you know aren't aren't uh, willing to pay him what he wants to be paid uh, I just feel badly for him but I think he's I think the Canucks like him and the reality is they still need they still need a defense you know that that area uh, especially in the context of what Rick Tonkett said, if you think about Vegas and now that we've all we've all gotten to see just how good the Golden Knights defense is, I think that's an area that's obviously uh, going to be in transition for a while. Like no matter what they do this summer, and we know they're cash strapped, and next summer they'll have a lot more flexibility as will everyone else. This is probably at least a couple of years in the making, and maybe longer before they get the defense that they really want. But I think they think that Ethan Bear can be a part of it. And if they do think that, then they should absolutely qualify him because he can still be a part of it, just not not September, October, probably November. And uh, that's that's too bad for Ethan Bear, but he's got a lot of years left in hockey. This is a team that needs to hit the, the ground running this season. They They have to get off to a hot start. And this injury to bear, this recovery time now, it certainly hinders the ability to do so because you're taking out what is essentially a top four defenseman from the Canucks roster uh, to start the year. If you're Rutherford and Alvin, how do you cope with this? Because this team cannot afford to start another season with the losing record. No, no, they can't. But I'm not sure that that hinges on whether Ethan Bear is in the lineup or not. You know, they they obviously they want as strong a lineup as possible. Ultimately, uh, every team deals with these with these injuries, and it's just too bad that that it happens at the start. But you know, the Canucks are accustomed to that because they've they've had so many of these guys who are 
you know, there but not there. Guys who have, have you know, the, the Dermots and the Poolmans and uh, Michael Furlan. Remember him? So, uh, so they're, they're a customer. That's, but it, just as, you know, the injury complicates things for Bear and the Canucks and their negotiations, it compli- definitely complicates in terms of their 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 lineup construction because even if he's out and you get LTIR relief, which they will, you still have to account for him at some point. Like you still have to, if it turns out he's a two point five million dollar player, you still have to have two point five million dollars in space somewhere or create it when he's ready to come back. So it complicates things that way. You don't go out in in my opinion, you don't go out and get a, uh, a guy who's going to cost you that to replace Bear because Bear is coming back and then you're going to be over the cap. So I think they just, you know, and we're guys, we're a long, long way away, as you know, from the start of next regular season. The Stanley Cup just ended. There's lots and lots of time to figure this out. Lots of, lots of time for other things to develop. But I think they showed last year after Tockett took over, they have a they have quite a bit of confidence in some of the guys that they've got in in their system, and they're not sexy names and they're not sexy players, but they showed well for the team down the stretch. And if it means you yeah. know that Breezebaugh or Willannon or whoever it is gets more a little more opportunity at the start, I think they're going to be absolutely comfortable with that because in the end, it's not going to be about you know, the player on the second pairing who replaces uh, Ethan Bear. But let's, by the way, remember that they're going to have Philip Ronick as well, who they didn't have. Did I get his first name wrong, by the way? No, nope, that's good. Okay. All right. It's been a while since I said it. So they'll have Ronick coming back as well. Um, but it's not going to be about that one guy, and it's not going to be about the third-line center. Th- those are key, key positions for them, and ultimately – you know, if if this time next year we're talking about how the Canucks actually did in the playoffs, then, you know, maybe that'll have, there'll be a little more meat on the bone for those discussions about well, who they brought in or what they were missing. But for now, and for, for the start of next season, it's all about talking, getting the team to play the way he wants them to play, getting them to play the way they essentially played for him at the end of the year because I don't know what the ceiling is for that team. Maybe it's not high enough to, to start thinking about playoffs, but certainly the floor has come up and they're going to be a lot more competitive if they play the way that they played under Tockett versus the way they finished under Bruce Boudreaux's time. And I don't just mean the last two weeks. I mean, all of Boudreaux's time this season, they were a bit of a disaster defensively. If they can play the way that Talkit wants them to play, they're going to be in almost all their games. And then, obviously, Thatcher Demko is a massive, massive figure for them in, in determining whether they win more of those or lose more of those. But uh, other than the goalie and, of course, who knows what injuries happen before then, I don't think it's going to be about what they do to fill in for Ethan Bear or who they have at the third-line centre. I think it's I think it's a broader a broader question for them still at this point than specific questions about individual players. 
iMac, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for jumping on with us following the conclusion of the Stanley Cup. And uh, have a good rest of your week and weekend. Enjoy the sunshine. Well, thanks. Thanks. I'm going to get uh, geared up for the draft. I'm not going, but uh, these things happen after the playoffs, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. I got, I got immersed. I, I have to say, really enjoyed covering the Stanley Cup final. It's the first one I've done since 2011 when the Canucks were in it. Of course. And uh, the cities were were okay. <laughs> you know, Vegas and South Florida, it's just too far. They were they, it's just too bad they were so far apart. But it was a real... Um, pleasure and privilege uh, to cover it and i think there were a lot of great stories on both teams but especially the vegas team and i'm glad for i'm glad for george mcphee who started with the vancouver canucks as this guy that pat quinn hired that nobody knew about finally getting his first stanley cup and his fourth visit to the final here here i agree with you all right guys thanks for having me on have a good one imac See ya. There he is, Ian McIntyre. This insider brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the work site. Find them together online. Uh, D-E-A-L-C. Oh, I just I just muffed it. I just muffed it, man. No. It, it, it cut out right in front of me. You're I had it right. You were just involved with answers. It's okay. Find them together online at D-L-E-A-M-C.com. I hate when technology fails me in the moment. It's okay. There's it's, another segment. It's the worst. We'll be better. We will be better. Uh, we are up against it. We need to get to break. Kyle Robbins joining us next, golf writer. Uh, we will talk U.S. Open right here on The People Show. Back to the People Show. Dominic Schramati hosting alongside Ben Basran. Ben Basran. Sorry. There you go. I need to make sure I do that properly. Tune in tomorrow morning on Halford and Bruff, 8 a.m. bright and early, as former Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux will join the show, join the guys. And you can watch that show live on Sportsnet Now. So it's not just a radio program or a podcast. It's a TV show as well. Ah, yeah, Bruce Boudreaux. That's pretty cool. Uh, also, we're coming to you live from the Kintex studio and text the 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at l- DunbarLumber.com. You know who does that read really well is Dan Riccio. Riccio does that read perfectly. He speeds through it. He's like, Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladder, Rich Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladder Center, Arbutus, Vancouver. I think he just ruined it. But, but, but he does it well. Like, I'm not doing it. it well. He does it well. Riccio's ins and outs on a show yeah. are flawless. He practices. He does. Yeah, he goes home, stands in the mirror. Well, he's great. Red leather, yellow leather. Dunbar Lumber. He also thought Scotty Shuffler was going to win the U.S. Open. And, and that's not uh, a horrible take either. And uh, he's eight under. No, he's, he's three under. Scotty Shuffler. Oh, sorry. I'm looking at uh, Shoffley. Very yeah. similar spelling. Very. Yeah. Uh, leaderboard update from the U.S. Open. Uh, as I just mentioned, Shoffley and Fowler leading at eight under. McElroy is now three under. Although after what just happened, I'm not sure what hole he's on, but he didn't look happy. I think he just moved to two under. Uh, so he falls out of third. And then uh, so there's Scheffler, DeChambeau, Burns, Kim, Barjon, Hardy, Clark, they're all sitting at three under. It's it's packed at the top of the U.S. Open standings. 
Well, it's going to be very interesting to see if these leaders can hold it or will they fall back to the pack. Yeah. By the way, McElroy parring that hole. He didn't look very happy. Still at three under. Uh, Kepka is on the sixth. He's also just, oh, he just missed a putt for par. So a bogey for... Uh, Too much time in the Florida Panthers boxes. Yeah, clearly. Watching hockey. We were just having a debate uh, off air before we bring Kyle Robbins in, uh, golf writer. Um, what te- What tees do you like? And you said just your traditional well, I don't use wooden tees tees. because they break just every second shot. But I'm not like using these like fancy like brush tees or whatever. I just use the regular plastic eco tees that look like a golf tee. It's none of this like and I looked at you specialty stuff or whatever. I don't buy any of that. Yeah, literally and figuratively. You're a very good golfer, so I trust your judgment. But I looked at you and I was like, I like those pink plastic tees that hold your ball up with like fingers. With like the little cup on it, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, thing? yeah. No, I think those are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bring him in now, Kyle Robbins, golf writer. You can check out his Substack, uh, One Iron. Uh, he joins us now, Kyle. How are you? What tees are you in your golf bag? What tees are in my golf bag? Uh, I believe it is the. I don't know, man. Like I'm picking up whatever I can find. <laughs> car, uh, like I think it's like the pro pro tee pro something. I don't know. They're two. Uh, two inch and three quarters. Uh, once upon a time, like I was, I was kind of a stickler upon that. They're the ones with, like little paint stripe in the middle. Yeah. But I, I don't know anymore. It's like uh, broken tea on the tea box. Whatever you need. Excellent. Okay. And every man love that. Uh, Kyle, the U.S. Open is traditionally the hardest open uh, from a course difficulty standpoint. But why are we seeing such a historically low scores today? Yeah, guys. Uh, honestly, it's a good question. And if you're if you're a golf nerd and you, and you kind of followed along and you, and you follow golf course architecture um lacc which is where this open is uh down in los angeles right in the city looking over over hollywood and everything else this is a different type of track than we've really seen before in a in a u.s open at least in recent memory Uh, this is a course that you know really when you think about the classic u.s open track you think about one of two things you think about oakmont in pittsburgh which is uh, beastly long, and you have the church pew bunkers and the very, very deep rough. And really, we are asking you as a test to do one of two things, which is hit the ball long, hit the ball straight, and uh, you know make sure that you can find a way to get the ball in the hole once it's on the surface in a couple of putts. Make lots of pars over and over again, shoot 72, and try to win the golf tournament at 1-2-3 under or 1-2-3 over. LACC is going to be a course of variety, and there are very, very difficult holes out there, but there are also lots of birdieable holes. And like, if if from my perspective, that makes for a more fun golf tournament. But the issue with a course like LACC is you're not going to get the baked out scene you get on the East Coast or in the Midwest here in the U.S. Um, in the middle of the summer. Uh, Southern California in the middle of June, it's known as June gloom. We get the Marine layer. The course really is not that dry to get the speed that you need. And on a layout like this, that has so many crazy angles, crazy embankments and Hills, what protects the golf course is really those angles, the runoff and the speed of the fairways that can create really difficult shots and approaches. That right now we don't really have. It's been kind of a wet and cool early part of the year. The course could bake out later and later in the week. But 
nobody really in the golf community is surprised to see guys like, you know, uh, Xander, Ricky, and others going out firing 62, 63, 64 to start today. And, um, you know, that maybe makes you a little bit uncomfortable if, if you're like me. And I kind of enjoy seeing guys shoot five over a wing foot. But this is still going to be an awesome championship. It just may look a little different than typical U.S. Open. Xander and Ricky, like you said, shot 62 today. Neither have won a major before. In your opinion, do you see that most likely that fact being broken uh, as they've raced out to this five-shot lead? Or do you think they're going to kind of fall back to the field? The USGA is probably going to see this and at least attempt to make the course harder. Uh, I was telling Dom earlier, I think that, you know, hole locations are probably going to get a bit trickier. Right now there's a bunch of these little bowls that kind of where the ball can funnel into it. So maybe do you see Xander and Ricky kind of falling back to everybody, staying out in front? You know, what's what do you see in the future here for going into the weekend? Yeah, guys, it, 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 it's tough to look in that crystal ball for guys like, like Xander and Ricky. Like, uh, normally – the the guys that you see that are going to easily, you know, probably fall back are the ones that have never been there before. Xander and Ricky have been there plenty of times. Now, Ricky, not recently. I would be surprised, honestly, to see him hang around through the rest of the weekend. I think it's an awesome story. It's the best thing that probably could happen to golf right now to get a guy like Ricky Fowler taking home a major, finally his first one in Los Angeles with everything else that's surrounding the sport regarding the tour, live, the Saudi injection of money, things of that nature. Um, but Xander's not going to fake. Xander's been here. He's won an Olympic gold. Um, he's been in this situation. Honestly, I would say he's probably one of the favorites going into the week, from my view, given the type of golf course and what it demands. It's a, ra- it's a well-rounded test. A U.S. Open always is. He's a guy that can drive it deep, but he also hits short irons well. He's got a strong wedge game. He's an all-around player. I'm not surprised to see a guy like Xander here. We're going to learn a lot here throughout the afternoon in terms of where everything can go um, and who's going to be involved. You already see other big names that are lurking right below that one being uh, one guy named R. McElroy uh, that may tend to flirt here through the weekend. But this is going to be a, ch- a championship that puts premium on the placement of the second shot. And uh, that's something that Xander Shoffley does well. That's something that Ricky's done uh, well throughout his career, just really not so in the last couple of years. Um, when he's kind of struggled a bit more. So I think you'll see uh, a lot of folks in play. And at a golf course like this where guys can go out and shoot 62, 63, 64, um, a lot of the field's going to be in play unless those guys that shot 62 go do so again tomorrow. Kyle, uh, the merger took center stage last week at the Canadian Open, and then it it seemingly took a back seat uh, when Nick Taylor won it, especially in this country. All of the focus was on the Canadian. What is the what's the temperature like around the U.S. Open and in the states, particularly right now? I, it, to me, it just feels like the merger's taken a backseat completely, and everyone's just focused on the golf. Yeah, guys, honestly, it's a good question. I mean, I, I am like uh, I'm. I have taken in the uh, afternoon action here. I'm not actually out at out at LACC. Uh, make the trip this year but just watching like a fan myself uh this week with a couple buddies at a, at a bar this afternoon that aren't necessarily regular golf fans the first question that i was still asked when i walked in is how do you feel about the 
poor and live. And I'm not going to go into my thoughts on that. You can find my Twitter, uh, my Twitter account um, where I have talked about that exhaustively um, because we don't have enough time on this show for me to cover it. You guys would have to do a whole other segment. But I would tell you, this still looms over golf. Like, everybody's like, hey, we're going to focus on golf this week. This is honestly the biggest sports story in golf, from my view, since the Tiger This is something that's fundamentally good. Um, this is fundamentally going to change how the sport operates um, for the next 10, 20, 50, who knows, years. Um, so it's not going away. Like, we can all pretend as much as we want that, like, oh, we're all focusing on golf this week. But ultimately, the reason you may have more people tuning in to watch right now uh, for the rest of the weekend is everybody's talking about golf because of, like, this weird drama on the side. And, like, nobody wants to have everyone looking at them because your sport feels like a little bit of a car wreck. But I think kind of golf has a little bit of this, like, I can't stop looking away thing right now that had a lot of people, maybe even that normally weren't watching, watching Nick Taylor hit that 72-footer last week. Which, by the way, guys, here in the States, we thought that was cool as hell. That was the most I've yelled for a regular PGA Tour event in a long time. That was, that was incredibly fun and why I think the Tour has a product that Liv can never compete with. But ultimately, it's still hanging over our head. And we can act like it's not. We can act like it's not here. The questions are still going to persist. We're all still going to think about the Liv thing. And if a guy like Brooks, Bill, Cam Smith, someone of that nature wins, we're going to ask all the same damn questions and it's still going to persist. So I think everybody pretending like this is all about just golf this week, we can all tune it out. I wish we were there, but I think that's optimistic. Part of the argument for a positive side of this possibly is that now all the best players in the world are back together. The, The Phils, the Brooks, the Cam Smiths, the Shambos, the Dustin Johnsons of the world. Um, from a regular golf fan's perspective, they want to see the stars. And I'd like your opinion on now that Tiger's kind of out of the sport. Uh, Tiger's not in these tournaments. He's not at the major this week. He was such a fixture. He was such a figure uh, in the game of golf for so long. When these players are out there, they knew when Tiger teed off. They knew when Tiger birdied a hole because they could hear the roars. Who's the person that the leaders, Ricky, Xander, are looking at at the leaderboard, listening to and being like, oh, he's making a move? Is it McElroy? Is it is it Scheffler right now? Like Who who really pushes the needle And for, for fans and for players now that Tiger's kind of done? It's I think it's a good question, guys, but I think ultimately the answer is there, there is no Tiger. And, and you don't replace ever a Tiger Woods by saying, here is another one that's going to do the same. Uh, I make this argument all the time, but we as a society, especially here in the U.S., we were more fundamentally obsessed with Tiger Woods, the person, probably than any athlete, at least not in my 30s, but in my lifetime here in, uh, here in the States. Jordan, Tiger maybe LeBron, maybe Serena, that's it. Those are the only people in the conversation. Rory is not in that conversation, but that's your person. I think with the role that he has stepped into being, frankly, Jay Monahan's PR person for the PGA Tour for the last year and a half, he has stepped into that role as someone that is the caretaker of the sport. Maybe if you are a live zealot, 
that is a rabid fan of Cleeks GC or the Fireballs. I don't think any of those exist. Like anybody that's grown up a Four Aces fan, maybe you really don't like Rory. But I would say that's the person that if Rory starts getting it going on Saturday afternoon, you're going to hear it cascade through the golf course. Now, the one thing that that I'll throw out about LACC is this is going to be a different gallery profile than even uh, we saw uh, north of the border uh, for all of you last week in Canada. LACC, you can only fit so many people on the ground. So this isn't going to feel like one of those rabid U.S. Opens on the East Coast here in the U.S. where you got 30 drunk guys yelling mashed potatoes. This is going to feel a little bit more corporate. Ticket prices are a little bit higher. They've limited the number of tickets that you can have on the ground, but you're still going to hear that cascade. And the guy is Rory. If you want to point to somebody that's going to be the standard bearer for the sport, he's going to be that person. But ultimately where golf is right now, the parity of what you have in the top 10 and the top 15 Guys like Brooks that now have five majors, obviously he's somebody you point to. Phil is still hanging around as, a, um, as an adjutant. You have guys like Scotty Scheffler is the number one player in the world. He's got one major under his belt, but is he somebody that really people show up to watch? Oh, by the way, how about that Jordan Spieth guy that we were culturally obsessed with for a couple of years? There are a number of guys, and you have to make up for Tiger in the aggregate. Golf has the potential to do that, but if you want to find one guy, it's always going to be Rory, I think, right now. Going back to what Dom said earlier, just about how this course is playing right now, do you think the USGA moving forward, if the winning score is in double digits, if the winning score gets to 12, 13, 14, 15 under par for the week, next year the US Open's at Pinehurst. That's a historic course. That's a regular US Open or major venue. Do you think they're just going to try to make it really hard next year to get back on track of being the U.S. Open? And they kind of just expected this to happen at LACC this year, maybe? Uh, I, I think it's an interesting point, guys. I actually think I think what you're seeing is the USGA has had a change of heart in terms of how they think about golf course setup. Uh, Mike Wan, who is the former CEO of the LPGA, who's now the CEO of the USGA, uh, Mike is someone that has tended to be responsive to fan feedback. You may remember him last year for the tweet in the middle of the U.S. Open when everybody, well, I, you all maybe not didn't see it up there, but here down in the States, everybody was complaining about the number of commercials that NBC was taking. And Mike put out a tweet in the middle of the third-round broadcast, say, hey, we hear you, we'll fix it for next year. And they did. Now they've come up with a strategy to reduce the number of commercials by 30 40%. Players, fans... I personally, I love the scenes when a ball is rolling back down to Phil's feet at Shinnecock when we tricked up the golf course. I think it's fun. Same. It's I think awesome. it's unique to golf. Um, it's fun, right? Um, and it's relatable for fans in a way, too. It's, it's, yeah, like all of us go out there, we leave a wedge short, it rolls back. Like It's fun to watch the best players in the world suck for a couple hours <laughs> on the weekend once a year. Mm-hmm. I think what you're seeing is players have gotten in the year of the USGA. And... There are the USGA was such a whipping boy for professional golfers, frankly, that are, are can be a coddled bunch. I'm going to be honest. That are used to playing tracks where you can hit driver wedge and shoot 25 under every single week on the PGA Tour. The USGA GA asked you for something different, and I think professional golf. Um, there were players, Jason Gore. If everybody remembers Jason Gore from the U.S. Open at Pinehurst in I believe 2006 when he finished or was going into the final round as a runner-up, the everyman, 
Jason Gore is a well-liked guy on the PGA Tour and has was the uh, player relations person with the USGA. The USGA has made a very concerted effort over the last five years, really, to get in better standing, yes, with fans, but specifically with PGA Tour players. And I think they've heard the feedback of, we're tired of this um, tricked-out sort of approach to golf courses. Do I think that's good for fans and good for the TV product? No, I I don't, because I think it makes it more like everything else. But I don't think you're going to see, at least in the next couple of years, the USGA come back out and try to artificially manufacture guys shooting three, four, five, six over to win the championship. I think the current USGA regime has moved past that. I think what's interesting is the PGA, the PGA of America, the PGA Championship, has now looked and said, hey, maybe we got an opportunity to remake our own France and we're going to take a little bit of that role. I think you saw that a little bit at Oak Hill and the PGA moving in that direction. So interesting to, uh, interesting dynamic. I don't think the USGA is obsessed with protecting par as it once was. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it makes the tournament a little bit more like everything else in the calendar. Kyle, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I want to uh, wish you a, a good weekend, and I hope you enjoy the uh, rest of the tournament. Yeah, guys, let's go enjoy it. Best four weeks of the year as far as I'm concerned. Have a good evening. Fantastic. Have a good evening. That is Kyle Robbins, golf writer. Go check out his Substack, uh, One Iron. You can uh, find him on Twitter under his name as well. Uh, that's all the time we have on The People Show. Thank you to Ben. Thank you to Victor Goucher for producing today's program. I am Dominic Schramatti. Coming up next, it is Canuck Central. Satyar Shah, Bik Nazar, right here on Sportsnet 650.